Today is Tuesday, December 24, 2019. On this day in 1945, George and Jenny Sauter's West Virginia home caught on fire. Five of their nine children were trapped inside the house as it burned to the ground. But their remains were never found, leaving some to speculate that the Sauter family tragedy was more than just a house fire. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Due to the violent nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Today we're discussing the 1945 Sauter family tragedy, when the family's home unexpectedly burned to the ground, killing five children inside. Let's go back to Fayetteville on the evening of December 24th, when the Sauters celebrated Christmas Eve. For Italian immigrant George Sauter and his wife, Jenny, Christmas Eve was a special time. Smiles and excitement emanated from their nine children as they hovered around the Christmas tree opening presents. George and Jenny realized it was getting late and marched everyone to bed, promising Santa would not come if they stayed up. By 11 p.m., everyone was fast asleep. However, at 12.30 a.m., the sound of the ringing telephone pierced through Jenny's dreams. Half asleep, she answered the phone in the other room. On the other end, she heard a strange female voice asking for an unknown name. Jenny heard laughter and glasses reverberating in the background. She hung up and made her way back to bed. Before she returned to her bedroom, she noticed something odd. The lights downstairs were still on. Not wanting to wake anyone, Jenny tiptoed down the wooden stairs. To her surprise, she saw one of her daughters, Marion, asleep on the sofa too excited for Christmas morning to even sleep in her own bed. Jenny noticed the front door was left unlocked, but didn't think anything of it. She turned off the lights, locked the door, and went to bed. She was slowly drifting back to sleep when she heard a loud bang on the roof. She also detected a strange rolling noise. Jenny turned toward George, but the sound did not wake him. Jenny laid nervously in bed, but everything else appeared normal. Silence returned, and eventually, Jenny dozed off to sleep. An hour passed before Jenny was awoken yet again, this time by the smell of smoke. She looked to her bedroom door. Thick smoke flooded in through the cracks. Jenny woke George. He jumped out of bed. Entering the hall, he could not believe it. Towering flames were swallowing his house. The whole house was ablaze. George grabbed his youngest daughter, Sylvia, from her crib in their bedroom and ran frantically downstairs. He noticed his other children already rushing out of the house. Jenny, George, and four children escaped. But five of their brood were still inside. George had to go back in. 
but the front door was engulfed in flames. He broke a side window, cutting his flesh in the process, and pushed onward with blood dripping down his arm. He couldn't see a thing, thanks to the smoke and fire that had already consumed the first floor and the stairway. His kids must still be upstairs, trapped. George raced back outside to grab the ladder, but it was missing from its usual place against the house. No matter, George realized he could drive one of his two coal trucks to the edge of the house and use it to climb up toward the windows. But despite the fact that they'd been working perfectly fine the day before, neither truck would start. In a mounting panic, George grabbed a bucket of water, but it was frozen solid. George's daughter, Marion, ran toward the neighbor's house to call the Fayetteville Fire Department, but couldn't get an operator. Another neighbor tried calling from a nearby tavern, but again could not get through. Yet another neighbor drove into town to alert Fire Chief F.J. Morris. Morris finally initiated the fire alarm, which worked like a chain. Each firefighter would call another firefighter and another until the whole brigade was activated. However, this took time, and within 45 minutes, the entire home was devastated. The fire department was only 2.5 miles away from the Sodder home, but not a single firefighter could get there in time. By the time they arrived at 8 a.m., the Sodder house was a pile of ash. George and Jenny Sodder presumed that five of their children had perished in the fire. That morning, the family returned to the property where their house once stood and searched for any belongings and remains from the children. But no remains were discovered. An investigation was opened, but only a few days in, Fire Chief F.J. Morris concluded the fire was so hot it had fully incinerated the children's bodies. State police blamed the fire on faulty wiring in the house. The final blow came from the coroner's office when the jury deliberated that the fire was indeed caused by the bad wiring. By December 30th, death certificates were issued to George and Jenny for the five children. The state had the whole case wrapped up in under a week. The Sodder family started to question the investigation and even began to suspect that perhaps their children were still alive. Coming up, we'll explore the unexplained mysteries surrounding the Sodder family tragedy, including eyewitness accounts of the missing Sodder children, long after the house fire. Now, back to the story. After losing five children in a tragic fire on Christmas Eve of 1945, George and Jenny Sodder returned to the remains of their former home almost compulsively. While they planted flowers, they had more on their minds than their grief. They were also piecing together a conspiracy theory based on a series of strange occurrences that happened in the months leading up to the fire. The previous fall, a man had approached George at the house 
inquiring about hauling jobs around town. The man roamed behind the house and noticed the fuse boxes. He warned George, this is going to cause a fire someday. George thought the declaration was odd since the power company had checked the wiring and said it was safe. He glanced back toward the man, but he was gone. A few weeks later, a life insurance salesman tried selling George a policy and was irate when George passed on the deal. As the salesman left the property, he yelled to George, your house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You're going to pay for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. George, a passionate immigrant from Sardinia, wasn't shy expressing his disdain for Italy's dictator, and it wasn't the first criticism it had gotten him. But at the time, he didn't take the salesman's claim seriously. The oddities only multiplied when a telephone repair worker informed George and Jenny that their phone wires were not burned as originally speculated, but instead cut. A man was arrested for cutting the line, but denied involvement in the fire. This got them thinking back to the state's claim of faulty electrical wiring. The Sodders soon realized if the fire was from faulty wiring as originally claimed, then how come the lights were still on as the fire blazed downstairs? After the fire, Jenny discovered some of her kitchen appliances intact in the rubble. She wondered how these survived when there were no traces of her children's bones. She began conducting experiments with animal bones to test her suspicions. She wanted to know if fire would consume them, but she was repeatedly left with a stack of discolored bones, never pure ash. Jenny even consulted with a crematorium expert who informed her that even after burning two hours at a temperature of 2,000 degrees, bones will remain. The solder house burned for 45 minutes, and with all the tests the fire department and the state supposedly conducted, bone remains should have been discovered. Jenny and George received an even more surprising revelation in 1946 when a witness came forward claiming he saw a man at the scene of the fire with a pulley system used for removing car engines. Was it possible that the Sodders' cars had been sabotaged to trap them at the burning house? The details just simply didn't match what the fire department told them. On one particular visit to the old house, their youngest daughter, Sylvia, found a rubber ball in the yard. Jenny recalled the thump on the roof from the night of the fire. George glanced at the ball and concluded it was a pineapple bomb commonly used during World War II. It hadn't exploded, and if it survived the fire, it was likely a dud in the first place, meaning someone may have tried and failed to bomb the solders. Evidence began mounting up that the fire was an act of arson. And worse, citizens of Fayetteville were coming forward and making claims they had seen the dead solder children. One woman insisted she had seen the children in the back seat of a speeding car at the same time the fire was raging back at the house. 
A few days after the fire, a waitress at a roadside diner informed police she had seen the children and served them breakfast. Afterwards, she said they got in a car that had Florida license plates. A woman at a Charleston hotel saw the photos of the family that George and Jenny gave to newspapers. She claimed she'd seen the children with two women and two men, all of Italian descent, and menacing looking. In 1947, the Sodders hired a private investigator by the name of C.C. Tinsley to examine the mounting mystery around the case. Tinsley discovered that the insurance salesman who yelled at George months before the fire was actually a member of the coroner's jury who deemed the fire accidental. In 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, Jenny received a letter postmarked from Kentucky with no return address. She opened it to find a photo of a young man who resembled her son, Lewis, who was nine at the time of the fire. The backside read, Lewis Sodder, I love brother Frankie, Lil Boys, A90132 or 35. George and Jeannie studied the photo and were convinced it was their son, Lewis. They once again hired a private investigator to look into their new findings, but the detective disappeared. Now, many suspect the Mafia were responsible for either killing or kidnapping the five Sodder children, but nothing can be proven. In 2012, Sylvia, the youngest of the Sodder children, said she will never forget the night of the fire and the image of her father bleeding and screaming for her siblings. With no breaks in the case in over 70 years, it's a pain all of the living Sodder children will have to take to their own graves. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Rini Thomas-Rodriguez, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson.